Thank you, Emma. Um, that's fun. <laughs> uh, a little bit, let me highlight before we get in our text and uh, the next week in our Poured Out series as we get into Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Christmas Eve is this Friday, 5 o'clock. Uh, we're going to do that at the Civic Center right downtown Silver Spring. Uh, it's a great opportunity to invite uh, neighbors, coworkers, friends, family, uh, maybe anybody who doesn't typically go to a church service, uh, invite them to come with you. Uh, five o'clock is going to be a kind of fun family service. Uh, I'm going to do something uh, during the sermon that will be fun for everybody. So uh, please uh, invite folks that they could hear the good news of the gospel, that they could uh, hear about who Jesus is and what he's done that might transform their lives, and, and that they could get to know us. Uh, so invite someone five o'clock uh, this Christmas Eve, that's this Friday uh, right down here at the Civic Center. Easy parking right next door to it. Uh, invite a friend. Uh, second is, uh, I've got a family update. Uh, you know, we've been praying for a space. Uh, the Lord has provided over this past year a generous amount of funds uh, through all of us as we said yes to him that we might uh, then be able to say yes to the next permanent space that he provides uh, for us. Uh, I told you a couple weeks ago about this uh, church in uh, the Silver Spring area that uh, really uh, has approached us and asked them uh, about this idea of how might we uh, partner together that they would uh, begin flourishing um, and also uh, receive the financial necessities uh, to care for their building. And then how might we uh, find a permanent space either with a piece of their land or their building or rental, some sort of uh, blend of who knows what. Uh, so we, we're continuing to move forward in that process. There was a great meeting this past week and it seems like uh, kind of we have shared interest to see uh, Jesus proclaimed here in Silver Spring, and uh, we also have kind of complementary needs, right? Us for a permanent place to do ministry and worship, and them to have uh, the finances to fund the vision that the Lord is calling them to. So, uh, man, pray. We're going to spend a minute here praying. It, it, it would be a long process if it works out. There's lots of barriers to it, uh, but, man, our God uh, has a mighty plan for the work of his gospel here in Silver Spring, and there's desperate need here. Uh, so it looks like maybe he'll break open the doors uh, with this situation. So uh, let's pray. And maybe this is it. Uh, we can all pray together at one time. Pray out loud. Uh, ask him to move in a mighty way uh, in this opportunity uh, that he might provide us permanent space to do the work of the gospel and worship him here for generations. So uh, let's pray all out loud, all at once. The Lord will sort out our prayers. Then I'll close us in prayer together. Let's pray now. Father, uh, through this whole process, we've been praying that there might be a God piece to this story. A piece where we just looked at it and said, we could not do that, but our God did it. And God, it looks like you may be doing that kind of thing in this relationship with this church in Silver Spring. And so, God, would you just, would you blow each of our congregations away with what you have in store for your purposes that we would step back and say, that's a God thing. And that, God, you would give us a permanent space to 
to worship you for generations, a permanent space to bless the people of Silver Spring and the surrounding areas, a, a permanent space to plant church after church after church for generations to come. God, would you sink our roots in here in Silver Spring for generations, for your purposes, for your name, and for your glory. God, if it's this opportunity, we'll, just, we'll give you praise for it. And God, if it's something else, we'll give you praise for that. We trust you. We love you. And we're following you into whatever you have for us, for your name, for your glory, for your praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's get into uh, Philippians 2 together. The poured out series, what we've been doing for Advent. Uh, this uh, past week, I read an article in the New York Times, and Nancy Red kind of gifts us in this article a look into her kind of upbringing uh, here as a black American and kind of what that looked like around Christmas time. And here's what she says. When I was growing up, no Christmas was complete without a variety of brown markers, crayons, and colored pencils scattered across our kitchen table for the duration of the holiday season. Well before diversity in merchandising was a thing, my mother, like many black parents in the 1980s and 1990s, always MacGyvered peach-skinned Christmas figurines into mirror images of our own family. Mom carefully colored in the faces of elves on ornaments, angel tree toppers, carolers on Christmas cards, and most importantly, all iterations of Santa Claus himself got the brown marker treatment. Our Santa was black, but to young me, he wasn't black Santa, he was simply Santa. No adjective required. Sometimes mom told me we had to color in his face because of a shortage of brown ink everywhere. A flimsy excuse I was naive enough to believe until larger plot holes in the Santa story started to reveal themselves as well when I was around 10 years old. For the next two decades, I didn't think much about Santa Claus until I gave birth to my son in the summer of 2011. And then she tells a story of kind of getting out her own black and brown markers and, and realizing merchandising hadn't changed that much. And, and she moves to New York and her story continues. And every year uh, uh, until my on-air hosting job relocated my family to New York City, they, they moved together. I presumed it would be easier to find a black Santa Claus in the world's most diverse city. And it was, but only because my show's executive producer was a generous black mom who took me under her wing and gave me the inside scoop. Like Harriet Tubman navigating folks along the Underground Railroad, she and our, her daughter benevolently shepherded my family on a journey to find Macy's secret black Santa. Referred to by the department store itself as special Santa and only available by word of mouth. At Macy's, we waited in a slow-moving line with a traditional white Santa tucked away in a room at the end until a specific elf appeared. My mommy mentor leaned towards the elf's pointy ear and whispered, we're looking for special Santa. The elf nodded and gave us a thumbs up and shortly thereafter, another elf escorted us to a separate but equally long line where we waited until a jolly black Santa magically appeared and made my two-year-old son season by giving him a fist bump and a high five. In the car ride home, our satisfied son slept in his car seat. My husband and I briefly chewed on the absurdity of this extremely othering experience. See, we're in search of, we long for one who is like me, who has come for me. 
one who's like me, who, who knows me, who can empathize with me, who knows my struggle, who knows my story, uh, who's like me and who has come for me, for my good, to give me some sort of presence, some sort of gift, some sort of blessing, some sort of grace. Jesus came in first century Palestine as a Jew. He looked a lot more like Osama bin Laden than a Southern conservative or a northern progressive. He came and he is just like you. He is just like me. But he is a whole lot more. And his coming, his incarnation is life transforming in every aspect. And so we'll follow the path of Madeline Lingle when she says this this morning. I, I do not understand the incarnation. I rejoice in it. We don't quite understand how one who is just like us came from heaven to earth and, 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 and how he is so much more than us to, to rescue us. The, the one who is fully God and fully man come from heaven to bring salvation, come from heaven to sympathize, come from heaven to suffer, come from heaven to give us grace. We don't fully understand how one can be fully man and fully God. In the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. But we rejoice in it and it changes everything. Uh, so we'll look at just uh, three verses out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. About that moment, the incarnation, that we won't fully understand, but we're going to try and understand it as best we can, that we might kind of blow our minds in rejoicing and wonder over the one who is just like us, who's come for us, but he's so much more than us. So let's look at this passage together and see our Savior brilliantly, that we might rejoice in him. Who is this Jesus? Uh, the first thing he says uh, is a bit confusing, like really this passage is. Uh, Paul entreats us or commands us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now we'll hear about who Jesus is and what he's done, come from heaven to earth. Who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What does that mean, the form of God? Is that something less than God? Uh, is this kind of a shell of God? Uh, what is the form of God? The, the word here is morphe. It's used twice in these first two verses. Uh, the, the word translated form in verse 8 is a different Greek word. But the first two times uh, morphe is used form. Uh, we see first it's the form of God. He was uh, in the very form of God, was in the form of God. What do we mean by this? Well, he, it was an appearance or known as God himself, the form of God, as uh, John 4, 24 would say, God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and truth. And, and we know God the Father, and at one point, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to be spirit, to be uh, kind of not like us in physicality appeared in the form of God, and he was uh, for all of eternity in this form as spirit until this moment when he took the form of a servant. And God who is spirit, God the Son, takes on flesh 
and comes into our earth, his earth, the earth he created, he now walks among. This again, the form, the appearance, the, the makeup, uh, 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 being known as a servant, as John 1.14 will put it, he tabernacled among us. It's kind of like Olaf. Uh, I don't know if you have watched Frozen and this whole thing. My, my girls love this. They've seen the first one 13 times. <laughs> Olaf the snowman, he, he's kind of in appearance a snowman, right? He's a uh, three uh, balls of snow stacked on top of each other. Uh, uh, he's in the morphe, the form of a snowman. But if he melts, he'd be in the morphe, the form of a puddle, liquid. And, and then if he got super hot, he'd be in the morphe, the form of a gas, evaporated, right? Uh, Olaf uh, could be snow, could be puddle, could be gas, the form. In the incarnation, what we see is God who is spirit took on flesh was fully God still, yet became fully man in the form of a servant, not just a man or a woman like you or me, but one who lived to come under us, to give all he had for us, to serve us sacrificially. The incarnation, the historic moment of the enfleshment of God. I, I got to go to Israel a few years back, and, and I was a tourist when I went there, right? Like every tourist, I step off the plane, I, I, I go into the airport, walk out, we're then in Jerusalem, right? The, uh, and, and we're in this, the, the majestic city where, where Jesus himself walked. And, and like every tourist, I said to uh, the guy, this biblical scholar who's walking us through the city, pointing out all these things and saying, that's fake and that's real. And, and I mean, this dude was a scholar scholars I said I said you think Jesus walked on this stone he's like you idiot because <laughs> like, that's what every tourist said Jesus could have stepped here I could be stepping where Jesus stepped you know and that's kind of what all the tourists do and, and, and he's like don't you know there's all this sediment on top of all these uh, history uh, historic moments and kind of we have to dig down to see where he would have been walking and then uh, then though I'm uh, uh, walking out of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley it's very, really just this kind of small depression right uh, outside of Jerusalem uh, separates it from these other little villages where Jesus did all these things and, and it's just it's, all, it's crazy how it's all in proximity there it's all so close and we kind of walk in this little valley and there's this huge stone. I mean, that thing hadn't moved for thousands of years. And there's this cool little alcove, and, and you can see the wall around Jerusalem right there. And, and I kind of just climbed up into the stone, and there's this kind of alcove there, and I sat in there, and I'm like, Jesus definitely did this. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, dude must have sat right here with his disciples. It's a perfect spot right there where he's always traversing back. I mean, literally, at at worst, he walked past that stone lots of times. But I bet he sat in that thing with his friends. And I'm (laughs) telling the enfleshment of God. It's interesting what Paul says about Jesus. When he came in the form of a servant who was very formed God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped. So, so is Jesus equal with God? I don't get it. Did he become less than God? And No, uh, the text says it's, it's not that he was unequal. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clawed at or, or to clung to in a way uh, where he would uh, leverage all of his godness all of the time. 
where he didn't come uh, in, in great pride, uh, like Satan who clawed for pride and it was his downfall. Uh, I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in the message. It's a fantastic translation. It's more like a commentary of the Bible. And Eugene Peterson says it this way. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he sat aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless life, obedient life, and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. He didn't claw, grasp, to get ahead, to move up, to be the tip of the top. He humbled himself. He lived in the form of a servant. He died a death on a cross for you and for me. Uh, we know that God is uh, uh, spirit and, and God the Father, right? The Christian God is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Uh, but we know that the Son is fully God as he is fully man. He is every bit as equal with God. You know, when Jesus talks about himself, like in John chapter um, 10, verse 30, he says this, he says, I and the Father are one. We got the same DNA. We're made of the same stuff. The Father and I are one. As Paul is talking about who Jesus is, he says it like this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn is a, a title of uh, a priority or precedence, right? He's numero uno. For by him all things were created, by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Numero uno, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his on the cross. Fullness of God was to dwell. Equal with God in every way, fully God, fully man. Being Cling to it, claw it up, live as numero uno on the earth. Everyone serve me. No, he served everyone. Uh, what does the passage go on to say? It says that he emptied himself. Didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but in contrast, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. He emptied himself. What did he pour out? What did he get rid of when he emptied himself? You know, that's what we think of. When we think of, we've been doing it with this big picture, right? We're pouring it out, right? What, what did he get rid of? What did Jesus get rid of? Think through the Gospels here for a second. Think through, what did Jesus get rid of? It's tricky because in Jesus' emptying, he didn't get rid of anything. What did he do? He added 
to himself, God who is spirit, God the Son eternal, the one who created all things, who existed for all eternity by the right hand of God the Father and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, this one he added to himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He added flesh to himself. He chose to limit who he was, in a sense, as God. Not, not becoming any less God, not, not knowing any less, not having any less power, not getting rid of anything, because if he got rid of any of his godness, he would what? Be no longer God. But he adds to himself. He takes on flesh to walk among us, to save us. I love this Jesus who is God and man. And there's this great story of Jesus the God-man in Luke chapter 2. This is right after the birth narrative that we read every Advent, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 41 and following. You can see this happening when, when God becomes man, right? Something like this. Now his parents went off to Jerusalem, the grocery store, right? You've been in the grocery store. You walked around with your kids. And, and they went off to Jerusalem every year, the Feast of Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to their custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He's like, I'm God. I'm going to do what I want. And he stays back in Jerusalem. But he's man, and his parents are pissed. <laughs> and his parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey on. But then they began to search for him among his relatives and acquaintances, and they did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem. Can you imagine? They're stomping back into the grocery store. Where are you? After three days, <laughs> they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. Boy, Jesus, 12, who's God and man, listening to the scribes and Pharisees and, and, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents saw him. They too are astonished. And his mother said to him, his, of course, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's fully God. He's fully man. And there's never been anything or anyone like him ever. Uh, there's another time in John chapter 4. It's another fantastic story of God who is man and Jesus who is man and Jesus who is God. And he comes up on this Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. I'll just read you the first couple of verses of some of it, but it's, it's really fantastic. And, and, and he comes and he comes upon the well of Jacob, verse 6 of John chapter 4. And Jesus was wearied as he was. He's tired. He's tired from his journey, and he's sitting beside this well. It's about the sixth hour, about noon. It's hot out, and a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. And Jesus said, give me a drink. He's not just tired, he's thirsty. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy him food. Why does he need food? Because he's hungry. And the Samaritan woman, they get in this conversation, and you see, man, this is Jesus who, who can... Uh, sympathize, empathize, walks a mile in our shoe. He's, he's tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's probably a bit frustrated, right? And then in verse 16 of chapter 4, they're talking and, 
And, and the lady's like, man, I, you don't know what you're talking about with this living water. What are you talking about? And Jesus says to her, and they've only had kind of surface level conversations. And Jesus says to her, well, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. Uh-oh. I'm not just dealing with uh, a normal guy here. The one who knows all things about every bit of my life. And what's so amazing is Jesus is fully God and fully man and knows this about this woman, knows everything about your life, even the dark, nasty stuff you're trying to hide. And what he does next is so godlike. He gives grace and embraces her. I love this kind of stuff about Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. Uh, Matthew chapter 26 is, it's Thursday uh, before Jesus is crucified on Friday. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, and they're eating at a table. Why? Because they eat, because he's God who's man and Jesus took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. He gave to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he gave him thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood. And they have this meal together. He commemorates what he's about to do in his death. And then there's this little phrase in verse 30, and when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I love that. Can you imagine Jesus, fully man, sitting at this table with his, his friends, his closest companions, and they sing this hymn. And can you imagine how it welled up in them as he knows he's going to be crucified and they're singing together around this table? Can you imagine that moment? Chapter 27, Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, finds himself in a trial, falsely accused. He's whipped, he's beaten, he's hung on a cross, and he dies. God, who is fully man, dies. But in chapter 28, we read of it, and we know of it, and we rejoice in it. Then he is raised again to newness of life, conquering death to give us life. God is... Jesus, fully God and fully man. No one expected it this way. No one expected it this way. You know, all the Jews, all the disciples, everybody, they're waiting for the king to come in and conquer Rome. They're like, what we need is a God who is God, who is king, who's going to crush. Uh, even Herod himself at the time of Jesus' birth, what's he do, right? He kills every boy, child, two years and under. Why? Because he's looking for a king who's a king who's going to crush. Peter, uh, one of Jesus' closest friends, he can't even handle this God who is Jesus fully God, but who is also fully man who's going to die on the cross when Jesus tells Peter he's going to die in his place. And Peter's like, no way are you dying. I don't want to happen. It's not in the paradigm that we have. No one expected it. No one understood it. There's a whole bunch of uh, heresies swirling around of uh, who is this Jesus who is fully God, fully man. Uh, uh, you got docetism, right? He's, he's fully God, but he's not quite man. Like, how do we make sense of this? He's, he's, yeah, he's fully God, but, you know, this is kind of just a shell of a man. Or, or maybe he's adopted his baptism. He's not like fully man. Or then when you got Ebionism, he's fully man, but not God, right? Like, he's fully God, but uh, man. But then, you know, God kind of just dips in and dips out at different moments. 
moments in his life where we got Apollinarianism that, that Jesus is this shell of a man, but really his mind and his soul, that's all the God stuff and is just kind of flesh on the outside. And, and then you got Eutychianism. I like this one because it, it, it sounds like what it is. It's a blend of God and man together. Eutychianism. It's like come together, right? Uh, he's, he's kind of not, he's not a horse. He, he, he's uh, not a donkey, but he's some sort of weird blend together, right? He's come together. And, and that's Eutychianism. Right? Then you got uh, Sabellianism, right? You got the Old Testament God who's God the Father. Then he kind of puts on a mask later as Jesus who comes and, and is uh, God the Son. And you, you kind of see these differences and then how that might make sense in one sense. You got modalism when, when God just kind of puts on a different mask at a different time and shows up, right? Everyone's like, man, what, what's quite going on with this one who has come and, and blown our paradigms? And even today, we can't fully understand it, but we rejoice in it as we believe what is true, that God took on flesh and Jesus came in one person, two natures, fully God and fully man. The Nicene Creed captures it for us. I just want us to read it together. We don't quite understand it, but we believe it. Let's read the Nicene Creed. The, the first uh, paragraph is really short. It's about God the Father. The next one is longer because they're codifying what is written in the scriptures, what is true, and, and what the church was believing in orthodoxy. When all these heresies start swirling around, they're like, man, we got to write this down and codify what the scriptures say about who this Jesus is. And then we say, we believe it as the church. And next we're going to get to the implications of it. So let's read this together. Let, let, let's go ahead and read out loud with some gusto. This is what we believe about who Jesus is in his flesh. Fully God, fully man. Uh, first couple lines about God the Father. Let's read together. Ready? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, who suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no one. No one expected it. No one quite understood it. And we believe it and rejoice. I want us to read uh, just a poem. I, I, I think the first implication, we'll get into some implications here, of uh, God who has come is fully God and fully man. The first implication is simply wonder. <laughs> wonder. I've been, uh, Malcolm Geith put together a whole bunch of uh, Advent Christmas uh, poems. I'm not an English guy, so I, I, I've enjoyed reading these and his explanations uh, one a day every December. 
This one's called kenosis, right? That's the phrase we've been looking at, the emptying, the kenosis, the Greek word for emptying of Christ by Lucy Shaw. In sleep, his, this is Jesus, in sleep, his infant mouth works in and out. You can picture him. He's so new. His silk skin has not yet been roughed by plain and wooden beam. Nor so far has he had to deal with human doubt. He's in a dream of a nipple found of blue-white milk of curving skin and pulsing in his little ear the inner throb of a warm heart's repeated sound. Only his memories float from fluid space. So new he has not pounded nails, hung a door, broken bread, felt rebuff, bent to the lash, wept for the sad heart of the human race. You can see his tender little skin. He's in this little dream. He thinks he's feeding in his mother's breast. He's got this soft skin and he's not yet been roughed uh, uh, by his work as a carpenter or, or, or the nailing into his hands of his skin onto a wooden beam. A little baby born to die. Marvel at it. God who tabernacled among us. Implication number one. God wants and he comes to solve our biggest problem. God, who is Jesus, comes to solve our biggest problem. The biggest problem we have is our, our distance, our gap, the barrier we have in relationship with our living God. It's existed all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 to 3. We were created for relationship with God. We would find life in relationship with God. Yet uh, in Adam and Eve, we have rebellion and sin that said, thanks but no thanks to this relationship, God. I'll live my own way. Every one of us has said it. Uh, every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and God says the wages of our sin is death, Romans 6.23. See, our biggest problem is not just a, a spatial gap between us and our God, but a, a relational, a spiritual gap between us and our God, that we are dead, severed, cut off from relationship with our God. The wage of our sin, our rebellion, is death. We need one to solve our biggest problem. Who can pay this wage? Who doesn't have a wage himself to pay? Enter Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. See, he's fully man in that uh, he walks in our shoes, right? He is uh, just like us as a fitting, perfect substitute, right? He can go one for one, and, but he's fully God in that every step he takes is obedient and perfect in line with his God and Father. I've been watching soccer, the Premier League, and, and in Premier League, you get five substitutes. So they kind of spread them out through the game, right? You got to get guys in when you need them and you sub them in on soccer player for soccer player. And I also play lacrosse. And in lacrosse, you can run around on the field with a, a six-foot-long uh, titanium pole and hit people with it. You cannot sub in a lacrosse player for a soccer player. It would be brutal out there. Even Chelsea wouldn't have a chance. You'd be running around and say, right, it doesn't work one for one. Apples for apples. 
God says there is a problem that exists with mankind. The relationship is broken. The wage of that sin is death. And when we need a substitute to step in and pay the wage fully, one who can step in as an atoning sacrifice, one who can fit the kind of uh, circle hole with a circle knob, right? Uh, who's apples for apples, a trade that's fitting. But one who doesn't have a wage himself, one who is perfect as God who can pay a penalty that he doesn't deserve. Why? So that he can pay your penalty and my penalty. He who had no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and what give his life as a ransom for many, one for one, paid to free us. The righteous one for us, the unrighteous, why? To make us righteous. That, that every bit of his obedience could be gifted to us, men and women, because he's man and woman himself. He's, he's fully human, right? But every bit of righteousness could be gifted because he is fully righteous every step of the way. The wage could be paid, the, the death on the cross for you and for me, because he had no wage to pay himself. He could say, you, you can take that on your behalf. So this morning, if this is new to you, would you receive Christ? Did you say, I believe, I believe that Jesus has come to rescue me, to, to take care of my biggest problem, to open up a relationship with the living God through his life, death, and resurrection. Would you receive Christ? If you're watching online, would you receive Christ? Just simply pray and say, I believe. He's come to solve our biggest problem. Second implication, God comes, God wants you. He moved first towards you, running towards you. Uh, he put that Christian in your life that you might hear the good news of the gospel when your family wasn't raising you to know Christ. He, he, he brought that hard time in your life that you might suffer and have nothing in your hands that you would call out to him and be saved. He wants you. He moved towards you. He ran towards you. He loves you that much. When you see God, it's not with a stiff arm. He's not trying to stay away from you. He's running towards you. And everyone is welcome. When Jesus is born, you should see his genealogy. It's full of misfits, ethnic outcasts, moral outcasts, everybody outcasts. He's like, you're a part of the family by grace. Now, when the angels come, right, the majestic, the, the on high, what are they, why are they there? To bring the on low, the shepherds along with us. <laughs> everyone is welcome. That's implication number two. Implication number three. God wants you to live like and for him in this paradigm. Have this mind, we're told, in verse five, that kicks off this whole pattern of who Christ is and what he's done. Have this mind. Live with this ethic, this love, this sacrifice, this humility, this service. And live it locally, hyper-locally, right where you are, right where you've been in flesh. Uh, man, look, look, worry about the nation. Worry about kind of what's going on. But, but bring justice and mercy and peace and love to your neighborhood and to those around you and your family even. We can moan and groan on Twitter all we want. If we don't love our neighbor, it means nothing. If you're not loving your spouse, your kids, it means nothing. So don't misdiagnose your biggest problem this Christmas. Do not misdiagnose your biggest problem this Christmas. 
I want this, I need that, I have to have this spouse, I have to have this child. If we could just change jobs or just move houses, if we could get all this. See, your biggest problem is not one of these things ultimately, it's your distance from God. Even if you know Christ, then to go closer and deeper with him in that thing. Finding what you're longing for in that thing, in him alone, that's why he's come. Don't misdiagnose your biggest problem this Christmas. Do not miss or misunderstand your God this Christmas either. Don't miss him. Stop. Take some time to cultivate your affections for this God who is man, Jesus Christ, come to rescue you. Don't, don't miss him. Maybe you, you, you got just till Friday, right? Christmas Eve. And then, I mean, it's like a whirlwind, probably starting Thursday. Maybe you need to take a day off of work. To sit with him. You're never going to look back. Oh man, I wish I hadn't taken that day off work. Sit with him in the scriptures. Listen to some hymns about who he is and some Christmas carols. Sing songs of, of who our God is and what, what cultivates your affection for him. Take some time to do so and stand back in wonder and awe and rejoice over who our God is and what he's done. Don't miss him and don't misunderstand him. He's come for every category of person. He's come for you. You might be thinking, man, this shameful thing that's in my past, no way has he come for me. Or you might be thinking, uh, if Christians are them, I don't want any part. Christians are not them. Christians are all kinds of people worshiping the risen Savior who's God and who's man. And there's nothing in your past or present that keeps you from him. His grace is massive. And lastly, do not misrepresent your God this Christmas. Uh, live your incarnational, hyper-local life in your home, in your work, in your neighborhood, and live like your Savior did. Man, this one hits me. I've been yelling a lot at home. So much my daughter just said, you're yelling a lot. Now I snicker over because I don't want to cry about it. You and I, we got to live hyper-local like our Savior has lived for us right where we are. I think the best way to do is this paradigm we've been talking about every Sunday, which is an act of love, a word of hope, a gift of grace. Pour it out on someone. Start with your spouse, start with your kids. An act of love, a word of hope, a gift of grace. Uh, where do you need to sacrifice for your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your family member, somebody this week? Would you, would you pour it out on them in an act of love? Where do you need to bring a word of hope of, of who your Savior is and what he's done, how he's transforming your life? Where do you need to bring that good hope to someone this week? And a gift of grace. Where do you need to pour out your financial resources for the good of somebody else this Christmas? Uh, we've challenged every one of us. Uh, pour out a massive end-of-year gift that we can continue the work uh, that we're doing in Title I schools and among the displaced, among vulnerable children and bring the gospel and seeing people cared for and people come to know Christ. Pour it out on the church that we might use it for the good work of the gospel this coming year like we're doing now. Because our Savior has come. We don't fully understand it, but we rejoice in who He is and what He's done. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says this about the baby who was born to die. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, the perfect son of God who is man. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He's fully God, perfect. No penalty, no wage to pay himself, obedient all the way to the cross. He's fully man, a perfect fitting substitute for men and women that, that uh, he might uh, sub himself in for their wage, their death, their penalty. And give them newness of life. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Relationship with the living God through the person of Christ who is fully God and fully man. If you're a believer this morning, we, we just invite you to, to enjoy and revel and rejoice in who Jesus is and what he's done. His body was broken in your place to pay that wage for your sin. His blood was spilled in your place to pay the wage for your sin. He is fully man, but he is fully God. Perfect, had no uh, uh, penalty to pay on his own. He's obedient all the way to the cross. And, and he's fully God, resurrected three days later. Then we might enjoy living relationship with him through the presence of the Holy Spirit. God who then comes to dwell in us and, and live and work through us to transform us in the very likeness of the Son who is in the form of God. But didn't count it something to be grasped or equality with God, something to be grasped. But he, he made himself a servant. Poured out his life for those around him. So rejoice over who your Savior is and what he's done this morning. If you're not yet trusting in Christ, would you, would you trust in him? Would you reach out to him? He has run towards you in prayer, just in conversation with God. Would you just say, I, I trust me. I don't fully understand all you've done for me in Christ. But what I do understand is you, you've paid the penalty of my sin and cling to him as a new son or daughter. Would you do that this morning? If you're trusting him, come and rejoice that Jesus, our God, Jesus, fully man, came to make you a son or daughter as you receive him by grace. Let's take and eat together.